Sovato arahato sama sambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa Putang damang sangang namasam So it's a Vesaka Puja today. Um, where we commemorate the, uh, the birth, the awakening and the uh, passing away of the Buddha. The most important one, is of course the middle bit, the, the awakening. Um, that's why we are here. Now, I don't know, if you're of, of a skeptical, kind of rational disposition, you might think, well, that's a kind of a strange coincidence or convenience that, you know, the, the Buddha was born and enlightened and he died all on the full moon of May. Or if you're more of a, a face type, then you would maybe just expect that from a marvelous, miraculous being like the Buddha, that he does such unusual things. But it occurred to me that another way of um, looking at the fact of having all these three events on the same day is just if we, um, if we really focus on the, the awakening, which I think is the main reason to celebrate, of course, uh, it's what started the whole Buddhist dispensation, the, the teaching that we still benefit from, then that is, of course, also, the, the, in one manner of speech, the, the birth of the Buddha. No? Because the Buddha didn't... Uh, refer to himself as the Buddha uh, until his uh, experience of awakening. Buddha actually means the awakened one. So if you no, not look at it in terms of the, the birth of the person, uh, Siddhartha, but um, the, the birth of the Buddha, that's certainly the moment of his, his awakening. And that implies also a kind of a death, a psychological death, if, if you like, like a contemporary teacher um, when he was um, once when he was asked uh, what would happen when he when he would die, he said, "What do you mean? I'm I'm already dead, double dead, dead to the body and dead to the mind." Mm -hmm. So there's a certain uh, type of uh, death you might say that's that's also implied in the awakening of the Buddha, the death to the illusory, the, the um, identification with the person, the personality, or whatever that that um, this, this concept might um, uh, refer to. And that would, of course, if you look at it this way, that would all fall onto the, the same moment, actually. This, the, in, that, in that sense, the, the death, the birth, and the awakening, that's one and the same event hmm? happening on the full moon of May. That idea of the, the, the death of the, some way of trying to express this in language, the, the death of, of the person or the, the attachment of the idea of, of personhood, that's something that easily gets uh, misunderstood, I think, also from, for practitioners, the whole area of self, non-self or not-self, and attachment or non-attachment. If you look at the, the life of the Buddha himself, as it is portrayed in the suttas, uh, obviously, the, the Buddha's body didn't just disintegrate and die <laughs> when, he, when he was awakened. Also, his, his, or what would we understand or what would appear to us like the personality, the person didn't disappear. If you read the, the stories around the Buddha, the Buddha had a very lively, let's say, personality. He would 
manifest personal tendencies. It could be quite fierce. No? Uh, we could be very caring. No? It's, we, we, can, we can still read that uh, in, in, the, in the actually record of the Buddhist teachings, of the Buddha's life. He seemed to have had preferences. You know, he, had, he was talking about his preferences. He had preferences for abiding in quiet places and solitude. Uh, he had preferences for monks and nuns who would behave well rather than those that didn't. No? Obviously, there was still, it's still personal tendencies. So what, what's the difference? Um, in my understanding, certainly, is, is the fact how he would relate to, internally to these, say, manifestations of personality or, or preferences and, and character traits. So the way I understand it is that he had fully seen through um, this, this manifestation, this formation of, of personality or personal tendencies and responses to as they arise in, in the moment, in the present, in, in different particular kind of circumstances, how we, how we respond to that and how that constellates some form of personal style of, of responding or, or reacting to, uh, in the case of the Buddha, I would say responding rather than reacting, of course, uh, to a particular situation, to a particular experience. And this seeing through this as a, as a, as a process, a conditioned process that arises in consciousness that one can be conscious of, also meant that the Buddha could then, uh, rather than believing in it and, and taking it up as a position, creating some, the illusion idea of a stable kind of self-same personality around those preferences, use um, his uh, capacities, you know, psychological capacities, emotional ca um, capabilities, in and what would seem the adequate way in responding to a situation, you know, rather than looking at terms and thinking of what, what is in there for me. You know, I think that makes a big difference you know, in which we, when the mind is really free, when that, that knowing capacity of, of consciousness has, is purified, you know, that we can actually, we can see, we can know what is arising in the present moment in terms of the, the, the sense experience and as well the internal experience of what manifests in our mind, what arises in our, our mind in response to situation. You really see through that, then there's a freedom from being bound by that and then this, whatever arises, can then be used just um, uh, skillfully. That would be wisdom. Uh, that's why the Buddha in his lifetime, he did say, if you want to see the Buddha, if you see the Dhamma, then you see the Buddha. And if you, if you want to honor the Buddha, then you practice the Dhamma, the, the, the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha is not what you find in the body. Well, there's, this, there's this particular sutta that sometimes we refer to where there, apparently there was a, a, a bhikkhu, actually a monk disciple of the Buddha, who was particularly enamored with the physical manifestation, you know, the, the, that being the physical being and person of the Buddha was apparently also very impressive and very radiant. But the Buddha noticed that he was unduly fixated on that aspect, you know, that he, just kind of, he couldn't stop kind of staring at the Buddha and, and, and expressing feeling his devotion. And he said, you're, you're bowing to the wrong thing. You know, the, the Buddha is not to be found in the, in the body. If you see the Dhamma, then you see the Buddha. So what is this... Buddha, then this awakened one, if it's not in the body, it's just, that's what the Buddha awakened to. That's the same 
when I understand when when Ajahn Chah gave us and other uh, teachers in, of, of the false tradition in Thailand, you know, they talked about that if we if we do want to take refuge in the Buddha, we don't take refuge in the historical Buddha, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, or, you know, the, the person who lived and 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 passed away in in India and Nepal 2,500 years ago, because he he. He died. He's he's gone. He can't help you anymore. But that Buddha, you know, that awakening, the awakened one, that that person actually discovered that we woke up to, that is something which is timeless. That is still here. That's now. So what is that in our experience? You know, that is why it can be. That is why it's still relevant. Why it can be become a refuge to ourselves. You when know, we look for the Buddha actually now in our experience, and it's something that is actually. Um, available to us right now, all, all of us, as we as we share this space together, and we can ask ourselves that: What is actually the Buddha now experience right now? What is what is the awakened one in ourselves? The translation that Ajahn Chah and, and the teachers in the Tri Tradition uh, use was the one who knows Buddha being the one the one that knows. So that is this very basic core quality of consciousness, which is knowing. If you are conscious, if you are conscious right now, and, and you somewhat look conscious to me, <laughs> no, then there's some quality of knowing there. If you're conscious, you know something. That's, that's an, it's an inherent innate quality that we have if you're conscious. There's some knowing. There's this capacity to know. Um, now, what do you know right now? You can ask yourself, what do, actually, what do you actually know right now? It's a very good question to ask oneself anytime. That's actually meditation, that's contemplation anytime. You don't have to sit on the cushion for that. You know, when you wake up in the morning, first thing, you know, can ask yourself, what do you actually know right now? Whatever the answer might be, whatever might come up, it could be quite simple, quite complex, but it does point yourself to this capacity and consciousness of knowing. That's always there, you always know something. So this, this quality of awareness in consciousness, if that's fully developed, fully purified, that is what leads to awakening. That leads to what the Buddha was talking about, is awakening, when it really sees through everything and anything. So that's when the knowing really goes deep. It penetrates, and particularly penetrates, of course, what Buddha thought is the causes of suffering, and how they are bound up with taking position in life right now, in our experience, as the experiencer of our experience right now. Be making something out of what is happening right now. The first, the most basic knowing that you probably all have, if you're conscious, it might be a bit, it might be very bright, very present, or it might be a bit dim, but you now somehow know that something is happening right now, isn't it? There's experience, something is happening. Now our tendency is always to then make something out of that, and then start to proliferate about it, get entangled in what we make out of that. That's how we continuously create our world, the Buddha called it the process of papancha. First, there's some kind of sense impression. You create perceptions around it. What do I know right now? There's something happening. What is it? There's sound. Oh, it's a voice. It's Abhinanda's voice, and I'm sitting here. Oh, there's a, there's a body. I feel that maybe my knee is hurting, or, or there's a thought coming up, or I'm bored, or this, or I'm excited, I'm interested. Immediately, it's a very quick process of how, how, how the basic kind of sense impressions we, we always keep creating a world, and usually we create ourselves as somebody in there who's experiencing this world. Mm -hmm. And we know that. 
Sometimes we know that. Behind that, there is, is always this, if you're conscious of that, there's a, there's a basic knowing of this, of this, this is actually happening right now. No, but this knowing can be very dim, no, just vaguely aware something is happening, and it can be very bright, very sharp, isn't it? You're very, very clear. No. Yeah, but usually for us unenlightened beings, or less enlightened beings, it stays dim because we tend to be, we, we tend to stay very focused on the content of our experience, you know, and our creations around that, which are driven by, we also know that as well, particularly if you have read a bit about the Buddhist teaching, you know, the basic drives of the mind uh, of um, liking and disliking, you know, turning into, when it gets, you know, stronger into, into wanting, greed, craving, or the opposite, you know, disliking to aversion or even hatred. You know, there's this general kind of emotional, energetic pushes that we feel on our mind towards the, our basic sense experiences through the six senses, you know, the five senses of the body and the, and the mind. So we tend to go towards the content, which, which always takes us away from this very basic, apparently kind of boring background quality. It doesn't, at the beginning, doesn't seem to be very much, the fact that you can just know what is happening right now. We don't stay there. Contemplation has a lot to do with just investing instead of in, in the actual experiences, whether we like them or we, we, we dislike them, the objects of consciousness, rather than being overly fascinated by them, to get start to be interested in how we respond to those, you know, and particularly this quality of knowing, you know, how we can just stay with knowing what's happening. We can know the, the sense experience, we can know our response or our reaction, we can stay with it knowing. You know, whenever we invest in this knowing, stay with this knowing, the, the knowing becomes stronger. It becomes a bit more of a refuge. It becomes more awake. But for most of us, if the mind is untrained, that's not the case. No, we, we tend to be more interested in what moves through the space of our consciousness, through our, our presence, than in this, the sense of just being present itself. It's a bit like, you know, the, an external metaphor would be like in this, in this room. No, it's this, uh, usually, if, we, if you're interested at all in anything, you know, it's if you just use the visual sense and we, we look around, we're interested in all the... The, 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 the different colors and forms that we see, and that's how our mind is built. We get a bit interested, we look, oh, what's this, you know, something different, you know? And then we start, we see people, and we start to proliferate around it, you know? First we create the objects of our world out of the sense experiences, colors, shapes, people, and then we start to have judgments about it, isn't it? Oh, he looks a bit funny, and, and look at her, she's asleep again, or... Or, or that one, he, he there, he looks, sits very straight. You know, I wish I could sit so straight. Well, how is he doing that? You, know, you, you notice how this goes very quickly and how it goes from the simple to the very basic, you know, building blocks out of which we build our, our world of perception to quite complicated um, ways about proliferating around it in which we get entangled and which you know, form all those different ways in which we can make uh, not just something out of experience but something um, slightly bothersome, no? which is the different forms of suffering, really. Mm. Which, if you like, we get kind of entangled and tripped up in our own creations of mind. So that's why 
this knowing, in order to become liberated, really needs to be trained, needs to be purified. That's why the Buddha didn't just teach one noble truth, the knowing, that's it. <laughs> but he taught four noble truths. No? The first one, he, he starts with the, with the dukkha, the fact there is unsatisfactoriness. The second one, there's a cause for it, which is precisely this greed and aversion that drives our interaction with the content of our experience, keeps us entangled. And then the, the end of the, of the suffering, which is the complete abandonment of these, of, the, of following any of those drives, of allowing them to develop into craving or aversion, which we can do if you just stay with the knowing, if you just know preference just to be a preference, if you know liking just to be liking, disliking just to be like, disliking. If the mind becomes so strong that it can just stay there, it doesn't have to be any problem. You know, we are free to follow a preference or not. If the mind is not strong, if it hasn't been developed, then again and again we just feel ourselves victims of our preferences. They become addictions to the things that we always feel we need to escape or the things that we feel that we are lacking that we need in order to feel good. And then the knowing is kind of, kind of piggybacks, a bit kind of attached to it, but it's just helpless, you know, like, like a passenger on the train. It's just, okay, I know I'm going this way again, but I can't do anything about it. You know, whoop, down you go. You know, same old, that's, <laughs> you know, this is a familiar experience, isn't it? Even if you practiced a long time. <clears throat> so that's why then there's a fourth noble truth. There's a pass, you know, the eightfold pass, which is what, what needs the effort, you know, which is the pass of purifying the mind. About, about sila, samadhi, panya. To attend to our preferences and to working our minds, the energies of our mind, to see and to trust in that basic knowing that knows when we are going actually in a direction that doesn't serve us, that isn't going into any good direction, or that actually knows which would be the appropriate thing to do. And then we have the patience to just keep reminding ourselves and training ourselves to keep making the effort to go in the direction of wholesomeness. Gradually, the mind then becomes more comfortable, becomes more stable, comes and and develops also more power of, for contemplation, for observation. You, know, you become less um, bound by our personal tendencies you know, from past conditioning. More energy becomes available to just know in the present of what is arising you know, and feeling this increased freedom around it or having the freedom of not following it, not having to follow it, you know, if it's not appropriate, if you know that it's not appropriate. So this might, might require a lot of patience sometimes because you know, our conditioning, we've got a lot of conditioning from the past. You know, it's like this, this train which has a momentum. Just because we take the foot of the accelerator, you know, it's still going to go with a lot of momentum. You know, so you remember like that Ajahn Chah you know, used to say that uh, not only the Ajahn Chah, it goes back right to the Buddha, isn't it? That, that patient endurance is the supreme incinerator of defilements. A lot of the time, we really just have to be patient and endure where we haven't yet developed the maturity um, to just let go. No, it's nice, we can just read it in a book and see it's a good idea, but you know, if the mind isn't yet strong enough, then sometimes we're just gonna have to keep bearing witness of how we keep making the same mistake and then just be honest enough to really see the suffering that comes from that until finally, maybe, um, we, <laughs> we learn the lesson, you know, we become, we become strong enough, you know, clear enough to not go down the same road again.
Only one encouraging thing in, within that is that basic quality, that basic liberating quality of the Buddha, the awareness, the one that knows, it is already here right now. It's a natural quality that we all have if you're conscious beings. Not to really trust in that. And to patient, be patient with them, but patiently keep investing in that. That is meditation. That is contemplation. So often also as spiritual practitioners, meditators, we, we are so much driven by our desires and aversions, we, we transpose that right into the spiritual uh, realm and into our practice. And even in our, in our meditation practice, when we sit down, you know, now I'm going to sit down and do my meditation, it's so often so driven by desire to have things different from how they are right now. So we're trying to create particular mind states which we think we need to attain in order to then have an insight which then is going to liberate us. And we get so busy trying to concentrate on the breath, on the breath or whatever, um, so preoccupied with the object of our meditation that we don't actually pay enough attention to the quality of our attention. To that, which is, what is actually meditating? What, what is it actually that knows the breath? You know, to ask ourselves this simple question, what do I actually know right now? Do I need to actually make an effort to know right now what's happening? Or is it actually very natural quality? If I only remember, you know, remember that sati, mindfulness, the original meaning of, of mindfulness is remembering. If you just go back to the just to remember, what, what to remember? To remember that, that, that this is happening right now, and to remember there's, if there's something happening right now, there's consciousness. If you remember that the, the core quality of consciousness is knowing, if you remember that, what do I actually know right now? And how can that be liberating? Well, those of you who have been here this morning, if you remember, uh, Lung Po was talking about, we don't actually have to know that much. So the more simple you can actually keep that knowing, the more liberating it potentially actually is. And if you ask yourself right now, you know, what do I actually know right now? Of course, your mind can come up with quite complex kind of things, and that's, you know, can be quite useful somewhere, but if you pare it right down, you know, like whatever, if you just think right now when I'm asking this, I have no clue what, I, what Abhinanda was talking about, but I know I'm just, I'm just losing it. I'm, just want to go home, and I know that. Okay, you might know right that. But if you make it more simple, even more simple, more directly, you know, what do I know? I know that this is a thought. This is a thought that arises in the mind, or this is a feeling. And if I can actually just stay there with that knowing, that that's, that's not very much, that's very simple knowing, you know, then that can be actually very liberating. If you really stay there, so this is just a feeling. So. Or this is just a thought. I don't have to make anything out of that. Right there is actually the invitation, the possibility of freedom from suffering. You know? If you get carried away with the content of the thought, then the knowing becomes very complicated. And that might be quite interesting, but it's actually not liberating. But that's, you see how that's, that's part of our, our problem? That's its truth, or the liberating truth. The problem is that it's not that complicated. If anything, it becomes a problem for us because it's too simple, because we are so complicated, and our conditioning is so complicated, and we are so conditioned to be interested in exciting things or complicated things, so having an interesting thought, 
know, you know for yourself. Usually that's something that gives us much more energy, is much more interesting than just knowing that this is just a thought. Particularly if you just have a very interesting thought and you take refuge in that or in being a clever person, then that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a come down, isn't it? You say, oh, this is just a thought. How disappointing is it? <laughs> but in that disappointment, you know, that just, just, just shows our attachment to personality and beings having interesting thoughts or something. If you can keep knowing that, if you can pare it down to that simplicity, you know, this is just a thought or no, this is just a feeling. That's actually where the liberation, um, the possibility for liberation lies. That's what the Buddha knew. You know? And the Buddha knew that that's um, how powerful that is from his own experience. And if you keep investing in that, how that gradually can actually clarify and deepen this, this direct kind of knowing that we have in our experience about how, all, how our personality and how our preferences, our desires and aversions kind of keep being constellated in this, this present moment, in, in all those different kind of complicated kind of ways that we just keep being dazzled by and being carried away with until we suddenly wake up again because we, we notice how we got entangled in suffering. And just, just keep looking at that, keep looking at that, noticing what do I actually know right now? 